Last month, Megan and I had the opportunity to attend an eight-day meditation retreat in North Carolina through an organization called Buddhist Geeks. I've been following their work through many years through their podcast and website, and I was grateful for this opportunity to go deeper in person. Uh, One central question for the Buddhist Geeks organization is, how can we serve the convergence of Buddhism with rapidly evolving technology and an increasingly globalized culture. I described this approach in a sermon a few years ago on pragmatic Buddhism, westernized Dharma, and 21st century Sangha. Dharma is teaching or path, Sangha is community. The basic idea is that in contrast to just believing stories about uh, what someone allegedly experienced thousands of years ago, whether in Buddhism or any tradition, pragmatic Buddhism emphasizes what can you confirm in your first-hand experience. Westernized Dharma seeks to integrate Western psychology, modern science, and contemporary technology into traditional Buddhist teachings. And 21st century Sangha means building a a Buddhist community that is relevant to this time. There are at least three major ways that we experimented with this perspective on the retreat. First, rather than focusing exclusively on one Buddhist tradition, there was a multi-traditional approach, drawing freely from the many different Buddhist, Buddhist paths for whatever felt relevant for our time and place. Uh, Second, in addition to lots of individual meditation time, there was also experiments with a social meditation practice in which we explored not only just what it's like to meditate in the same room individually, just in proximity to one another, but also to practice what techniques might there be that are actually only possible with two or three or more people. Uh, and actually kind of practicing some of that interdependent web of all existence, or what Buddhists call an interdependent co-arising. So examples might be a social noting practice. So instead of just in yourself noting distraction or cool or whatever you're noticing, actually having people call that out in a certain way so that your, your own noticing, you notice things you might not have noticed otherwise and that your noticing goes deeper. Or a social counting practice where you're not the only one holding the breath count, but other people are... So so that you, know, you might start to get distracted, but it's actually someone else who brings you back into focus. Or social insight practice. So instead of you just asking one of those, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping or whatever, you know, these stereotypical koans, actually having an interactive practice where your questioning is going deeper because it's interacting with another person. Finally, rather than banning technology, which is quite common at contemplative retreats, and there are really good reasons to ban technology from time to time, uh, there was actually a contemplative technology period each day after lunch in which we were invited to, what was it like to experiment with using technology in this retreat atmosphere? How might we use technology more mindfully or compassionately or, or notice more the ways in which we're being manipulated by technology? I should perhaps add for anyone curious that an eight-day meditation retreat does not mean spending eight-plus hours with your butt, you know, on a meditation cushion without stopping. Uh, That would sound terrible. Uh, The longest period we ever spent in uh, seated meditation without a break was about 45 minutes, and then there would uh, be like a moving meditation for 15 minutes or 30 minutes, and then maybe more sitting and kind of alternating. And that's actually a quite common pattern in most meditation retreats. So if you're ever worried that you're not just going to be asked, uh, okay, go in that room, stare at the wall for eight hours, and we'll see you in a bit. 
so let's see. Uh, for me, the greatest benefit of this and other similar retreats I've attended in the past was just having so many days in a row to expansively explore contemplative practices such as concentration, awareness, insight, heartfulness, mindfulness. And I'll confess that even though I am a professional spiritual leader, that's what I'm told, right? Uh, It is often hard even for me to always carve out time for spiritual practice on a daily basis amidst all the demands of everyday life. It's all too easy to slip into a pattern of feeling like, oh, well, I'll get to the spiritual practice if I get everything else done, right? Then I can give myself permission to, to do that. Uh, not surprisingly, that approach leads to very little, if any, actual meditation practice. Even though I know that the inverse approach is actually much wiser and much saner. When I carve out 20 to 45 minutes to meditate, ideally first thing in the morning, there is a positive impact on the rest of the day, as well as an overall building cumulative impact. I mean, I find it difficult sometimes to prioritize meditation despite all that I know about the benefits that science is increasingly showing us of what a regular meditation practice can do for you. We know that meditation increases gray matter in the brain. It reduces cortical thinning due to aging in the prefrontal regions. It improves attention and compassion and empathy. It increases activation of the left frontal regions and lifts your mood. It decreases stress-related cortisol. It strengthens your immune system. It helps a variety of medical conditions, including cardiovascular disease, asthma, type 2 diabetes, and chronic pain. It helps numerous psychological conditions, including insomnia, anxiety, phobias, and eating disorders. By no means is it a cure-all. It doesn't, like, cure those things necessarily, but it measurably makes them easier to, to deal with and to live with. It has many measurable positive impacts. So I know all that, yet I have no delusion of converting all of you to a daily meditation practice with a list of scientific data, because I can't even fully convert myself with that list of scientific data. Life is messier and more complex than that. I would, however, like to share with you just a few simple steps along those same lines. My uh, inspiration is a book called Hardwiring Happiness. It's by the neuropsychologist Dr. Rick Hansen. Some of you may be familiar with his earlier and also excellent book titled Buddha's Brain. One of my biggest takeaways from that earlier book is that we humans have evolved to have a negativity bias. In Hansen's memorable phrase, our brains are like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive experiences. And that's because the people who actually survived out in the wild were the people that overreacted to, is that shadow a tiger or the wind? So the ones that overreacted to that and, you know, ran away even when it was the shadow and not just the tiger, they survived when it was the tiger uh, and passed their genes on to create all of us. Uh, So, you know, there's a good reason that political philosophers describe the life of our ancestors as one of continual fear and danger of violent death, and that our lives of our ancestors were solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. For millions of years in such brutal conditions, starvation and predators and disease kept hominid and human human population levels essentially flat despite potential population growth curves of about 2%. We were kept down because of starvation and predators and disease and killing one another. 
But today, we live in a different world. The sharp decrease in threat from starvation and predators and disease is evidenced by our human population at 7 billion people and rising easily to 9 billion to 11 billion or more, depending on who you talk to. Uh, But the negativity bias that kept our ancestors alive long enough to pass on their genes, that is inhibiting our well-being today. And the first step is admitting you have a problem, right? Because of our negativity bias, scientists estimate that for most of us, we need a three-to-one positive-to-negative ratio, um, ideally higher, to counterbalance, so to have sort of a positive outlook on life. We need about three positive experiences to every negative experiences to counterbalance the ways that our minds are like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive experiences. I suspect most of you can think back just over the past week or so to something negative that happened and fixating on it, right? You want to just kind of put it behind you and your mind keep, you you kept you up at night or you just kept, you're like, God, this thing happened. And there might've been 10,000 great things about that day, but that, you know, Most of you probably know what I'm talking about, the way our minds can fixate on the negative. That tiger, right? So I'd like to share with you just one simple technique for cultivating more positive experiences and helping allow those positive experiences that we do have to sink in through our Teflon-like brains. Uh, In my spiritual direction training, the word we used for this practice was savoring. When something good happens, slow down if you can. Take a few deep breaths and just say, wait, I want to really enjoy this peach. I want to really enjoy this conversation, this cup of coffee, this, this whatever. Really notice all the aspects of that experience that are pleasurable. This practice can be done a few times a day. It can be done as little as five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. But what doesn't work is just just going through your day one damn thing after another, right? That, that will not integrate those positive experiences and you'll just be stuck with the, those fi- fixating on the negative ones. It's really incredibly simple, and, but a way of really increasing this ratio of positive to negative experiences in your life. Uh, so when you linger for a few moments over a, you know, a positive moment, you help take it instead of fleeting and really embed it. Because to quote another of those catchphrases from neuropsychology circles, neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's what you're doing. Uh, Dr. Hansen's acronym for this approach is HEAL, H-E-A-L. So H, have a positive experience. That's the H in HEAL. Enrich it, absorb it, and link positive and negative material. Uh, part of me actually prefers the simple one word savoring, right? Just savor it. It's simple. Keep it simple. But I do think there's actually something to that heel if you want to think a little more in a more nuanced way about it. But if it's this, if this, what I'm about to describe in the next minute or so doesn't work for you, just savor it. You know, that's fine. So to give just a brief overview of Hansen's process. So the first, first, uh, the H and heal is have a positive experience. Hansen is using that word experience intentionally. He wants us to move from fleeting pleasures or just passing positive thoughts to actually have an emotionally rewarding experience. You know, taking five, 10, 20 seconds or more to actually really have 
and positive experience. Importantly, you don't even have to wait for a positive experience to come. You can just set an alarm on your iPhone for 9, noon, and 3, and at each of those times, either savor something that's happened in the day or just think back to your past. It works equally well if you just think back to some pleasant moment in your past and further deepen it and further, you know, think back to this pleasant moment. That is actually a positive experience, one that most of us don't necessarily take time for in our busy lives. So think about things that you're grateful for, bring to mind a friend, recognize a task that you've created. Don't just check it off your to-do list. Just take 5 or 10 or 20 seconds to be like, oh, it's great to cross this thing off my list, right? Just really savor that. Uh, Step two, the E in heal, is to enrich it. Take those few deep breaths, really linger on the experience, notice your feelings. You know, what am I feeling? Uh, Am I mad? Am I sad? Am I glad? You know, am I joyful? Really linger on your experiences, uh, what's rising up in your body. Gently encourage the uh, experience to be more intense. Step three, the A in heel is to absorb it. Explicitly set an intention along the lines of, I really want to let this moment sink in. You may even want to experiment with visualizing the experience or a symbol of the experience sinking into your chest or perhaps visualize it kind of in front of you and then integrating into your head and then absorb and then let it descend down into your heart, into your head and then descend down into your heart. Hansen writes, know that the experience is becoming part of you, and it's a resource inside you that you can take wherever you go. So the next time you're fixating on a negative experience, you can pull one of these positive experiences out of your back pocket. Uh, These experiences that we consciously integrate can be powerful lifelines when those inevitable negative experiences come along that our brain just wants to latch onto, like Velcro. Finally, step four in L is heal. This one's the most complicated, so this may well not make sense. Hansen goes very in-depth in it in his book, but uh, this is an optional kind of advanced step of how do we begin to kind of even uproot some of the negative experiences. So L is link, link the positive and negative experiences. He says, when attempting to savor a positive experience, you may find that a negative experience that's associated with this positive experience begins to lurk around the back of your mind. For example, while attempting to savor a wonderful moment of connection with a friend, you might sense this experience making contact with feelings of loneliness from your past. So Hansen says that's actually an opportunity. If the negative material is trying to hijack your attention, drop it and try to, you note it, and then try to focus only on the positive. And when you feel you have sort of recentered in the positive, you can let the negative gently come back into the periphery of your awareness. And then to continue uprooting the negative material, he says a few times over the next hour, this part is starting to feel unrealistic to me. Uh, for myself, you know, it may or may not be realistic to you, but he says, be only aware of neutral or positive material, which also brings to mind neutral things. So people, situation, ideas, that have be- and then begin to associate that with the negative. So you're sort of taking the negative and making it neutral and associating it with the positive. So that's the most complicated part, clearly. Uh, Over time, what you're doing is slowly changing the pattern of how your brain free associates. A fancy name for this dynamic is self-directed neuroplasticity. So self-directed neuroplasticity. More colloquially, Hansen calls it hardwiring happiness.
There's a lot more to say about all this. And the best part I've found of comparing sort of Buddha's brain to hardwiring happiness is there are just a ton of practical steps in this hardwiring happiness book. Tons of practices, uh, 21 day, you know, what you can do differently for 21 days to sort of do all of this. So uh, that's to sort of incorporate these techniques into your everyday life. But overall, the major paradigm shift that he is seeking is to cultivate spending more time in what he calls our, our brain's green responsive mode and much less time in what he calls our brain's red reactive mode. So, you know, red just reacts to something versus saying, okay, something just happened. I'm going to respond to that, right? So stimulus response, I mean, stimulus reaction versus stimulus. Okay, how do I want to respond to this? When we're in that red reactive mode, the amygdala, that's that two, those two almond-shaped cluster of neurons that are in our... um, uh, in the temporal lobes of our brains, that it, when you're reacting and seeing red, your amygdala is dominating your brain. It's been called the fight or flight or the have sex with it or kill it part of our brain. <laughs> By no means am I saying that we want to get rid of the amygdala, this evolutionary inheritance from our ancestors. That saves our life in high-threatening situations. You know, if you're uh, if you put your hand on something hot, you want your amygdala to react. If someone is you're trying to run you over with a car, you, you want your amygdala. But this evolutionary inheritance from our ancestors that can save our life in a high-threatening situation, it's causing us to live in, for many of us, to live in this high-ratcheted-up state of anxiety all the time, even though there's seven-plus billion of us on the planet. So contemplative practices can help cultivate those more evolved parts of ourselves that the prefrontal cortex makes possible. Compassion, clarity, concentration, equanimity. Contemplative practices from a high-impact type practice, like cultivating a 20-minute, 30-minute, hour, even up to two hours a day um, meditation routine, that can help... um, get us more in our prefrontal cortex, but so can a a lower impact practice like savoring, like this heal method. It can get us into our prefrontal cortex and out of our monkey mind, our reptilian brain. For now, I'll leave the final words to Rick Hansen. He writes that the reactive mode of the brain has worked well for survival for most of human history, but today it is stressing out the whole planet. For more than 99% of the past 60 million years, our human and primate ancestors lived in small hunter-gatherer groups in which staying alive required identifying with us and mistrusting and attacking them. Now these reactive tendencies, they're fueling unnecessary conflicts. We've armed a Stone Age brain with nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, the fearful, greedy, self-centered, reactive settings of the brain promote a kind of gorging of the Earth's limited resources that is causing deforestation, mass extinction, climate change. But imagine a world in which the critical mass of human brains spent most, if not all, their time occasionally in red reactive mode, but most of their time in in responsive mode, in reactive mode. Eventually, there would come a tipping point. Now, people would still lock their doors at night. They would still reach for a profit. They would still disagree and compete with one another. But the ancient fires of fear and frustration and heartache would be banked low or beginning to extinguish from lack of fuel. 
Think back to that spoken meditation earlier, to times you've been on a spiritual retreat or a vacation that was actually relaxing. Remember how you feel when you're resting in a basic sense of peace and contentment and love. Remember what it's like to be with other people who are in that same state of equanimity, rest, peace, contentment, love, calm. Imagine what your family would be like, what your workplace, what your community might be like if most everyone were in that centered, responsive mode. The best part of this vision is it doesn't have to end in our imagination. There are simple, practical steps that we can take ourselves, that we can teach to others for cultivating more compassion, more calm, more contentment in ourselves, in others, and in our lives. So in the wake of going on this uh, eight-day meditation retreat, I wanted to tell you one uh, anecdote that I think there can be this temptation, whether with Buddhism or other spiritual paths, that we're seeking perfection. And there there is no perfection. I mean, that's, I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles. It's just not, it's just not possible. And we actually can really uh, set ourselves up for disappointment if we think we're just going to experience some sort of uh, perfection. That, uh, so, you know, coming out of this you know, blissful retreat. Um, a few, uh, not long after that, uh, my mother was coming in town for a week, and I was looking forward to that. And the so, but the day that she was supposed to come into town, I was getting ready to go to the airport, and it turned out for a confluence of reasons that I will not fully go into that that her flight had been booked for the airport near where my aunt used to live instead of the place where my aunt had moved to. So she had gotten to the airport that morning and was, and so they were able to move her flight, but that was like the first piece of bad news. Then so. So hours later, I'm finally going to the, because I'm worried about her and this long, you know, and having to, instead of having a a one-hour direct flight, she's waiting, and then she's got a connection and all of that. And then I'm on the way to the airport, and my car overheats. And so, uh, you know, couldn't drive it, had to call a tow truck and all of that. Got home and was moving some stuff around and realized that a pen of, like, permanent ink had, been, had stained our furniture because it had gotten left on. And I was just like, what is going on today, right? And, and I, I think, but, but having just come off of this retreat, I was actually pleased that I was like, I'm actually not reacting to any of this. I mean, it was like bothering me, but it wasn't, it was really kind of different. I was just kind of like, uh, there's, a, there's an old Zen saying that um, if, you're, if you're not enlightened, things are, if you're enlightened, things are as they are. If you aren't enlightened, things are as they are. The point being, things are what they are. I mean, like, uh, and, and that was sort of how I was reacting to this. I'm kind of like, okay, this thing happened, and so it happened, and so now I'm going to respond to it as best I can. And okay, this other annoying thing happened, but I, I found myself less beating myself up about it than even like recently. I can think of this week, having further away from that retreat, I can see how I was reacting and kind of fixating on this little, this little thing. So I would just say that's just a brief example of how this stuff works. Um, also related to the savoring, I wanted to say briefly, I, was, um, I don't know if any of you listen to the podcast Invisibilia, it's, it's on NPR as well, it's an excellent podcast. There was an interview on there where there's a comedian, I don't remember the other story, but they were telling very similar stories about their parents and how their parents just didn't understand their suffering as children and as teenagers because their parents had grown up in very different settings. The one that I remember is the, this comedian's parents had grown up in India. 
and had grown up amidst a lot of riots. Uh, many of his friends had died, just a lot of violence, a lot of poverty. And he, and this comedian, grew up in the U.S. And, um, uh, you know, and so when he would come home and say, you know, Dad, this terrible thing happened. They were making fun of me for being Indian, or they were, you know, somebody stole my lunch. You know, or actually, you know, sort of legitimate things that he was looking for empathy for, for his dad to get outraged about. He just said, my whole childhood, not, not a single thing ever happened to me in my childhood. My dad would just give me this, like, and? He's like, are people rioting in the streets? Like, I mean, like, and it was including things that happened, like their car got broken into and their CDs got stolen. He was like, I don't know. Like, just nothing phased his father, because he's like, we don't live in a war-torn land. He's like, and he said, and so this relates to savoring, as he says he can just think back to his dad. So there was both that side, and then his dad was just, he said, delighted throughout his childhood by the smallest thing. So he could never get a rise out of him, but, like, his dad would go to the grocery store and buy, like, 30 mangoes. And just, he would say, just, like, he would come home and his dad would just be sitting in his recliner and just eating mangoes with, like, the biggest smile on his face, just having the best time and just savoring it and loving it and loving his life. And so he, and so, and the part, part what they were talking about with the interview is, what would you prefer? You know, if you had to choose, would you rather have the worldview of your father or the worldview of maybe a, or how, and how do you want to be a parent? And they said, they were talking about being parents and having had parents that were, and they said, you know, if I had to choose, I think I actually might choose the way my dad experiences life. That just that being so delighted by the smallest things and just being so unfazed by, because having some perspective. So I just offer you those two things related to this whole idea of, of savoring and um, pleasure and pain. Uh, I guess the final thing I'll say that Rick Hansen writes about, and this is a common Buddhist thing, that there are two darts. We're always going to get the first dart, you know, awakened, enlightened, whatever. The first dart is pain. You know, pain's going to come, but what we can learn to do differently is the second dart. And that's the second dart is what we hurl at ourselves. That we, you know, so we're always going to get that first dart, but we, we throw all these second and third and fourth darts at ourselves. That, so when people say suffering is optional, you know, that's what they mean. That's what Buddhists mean when they say suffering is optional. That pain isn't optional. Suffering is optional. The second and the third and the fourth darts and more that we throw at ourselves. So as we go from this place, our op- invitation, our opportunity is to continue this journey in love. Love for others, but also love for ourselves and for this world. So care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.